What we want to do at this, this conference is not just overwhelm you, because most of us in parenting are already overwhelmed, and, and that's what Kyle was alluding to this morning. I mean, last night, in case you weren't, I wanted you to be. I wanted you to realize what was at stake and how much was riding on uh, this job that we have as parents. But we also knew that if we just came and told you about what parents were supposed to be, you would just leave here more guilty than you came. And we did not want that to happen. So we sat down with a lot of different folks and we said, and we actually asked you when you registered, many of you, what are the main questions that you hope get answered to this thing? And we came up with uh, dozens of them and we boiled them down into 10 major categories. And then what we did is we went and got a group of folks and sat down and said, okay, with all the different years of wisdom that you've had and your knowledge of the family Bible, how would you answer these questions to a group of folks? So I want to introduce you to some of the people that we're going to use today to help us walk our way through this. And it's going to be kind of a team taught session. Uh, we've got guys and gals up here because uh, that will give us the color we need and the application specific to each sex and each role within marriage. So if you're part of the team, come on up here and take a seat and then I'll introduce them to you in just a moment. But we're going to roll through these. Do your best to not look ahead and uh, we'll make a deal with you. If there is a question that is not answered, if you will, that is specific to your need, if you let us know, we'll make sure we get that covered at some point or we'll hook you up with some folks that can shepherd you through that in the days that are coming, in the days that are ahead. But our heart is that this is going to scratch the itch right here. We're going to get right to it. Questions about sex, teaching your kids about sex. Question about whether or not you drive your kids to church or to spiritual things when they have no interest to go. Questions about discipline and what that looks like and how. And uh, all the others that we think are the ten biggies that are out there with lots of little subsets that go with them. Let me just introduce our team to you, and I'm excited for you to get to know each of them. I'll start down here in this end. That's Bron Brown. Many of you know Bron that are involved with our uh, high school and junior high ministry. Bron is the director of our student ministries at Watermark and has been uh, training youth pastors around the country for many years. And for the last five years, we have been blessed to have him with us. One of the most gifted men that I know. And he and his wife, Angie, uh, are in the middle of raising three folks and their family. And uh, we're pleased to have Bron up here. And it's great that you can see the level of... Um, you know, intelligence, wisdom, and godliness at shepherding our kids there. And, and Braun is much of the creative part behind all that's making you laugh this weekend. So we are really glad Braun is on our team. Next to him is Robin Rice. And Robin and I have known each other for a long time. Robin and her husband, Robbie, direct our college ministry. They just came on staff with us this year, but they've been at SMU and uh, Texas Tech and Texas A&M and leading college ministry around the country for the better part of their life since they themselves were out of college for the last 15 or so years. And Robin and Robbie are uh, shepherding those folks in that particular segment of life for us. And uh, we're glad that Robin is on our staff. Next, we have uh, Jim Wimberly. And Jim is uh, on staff at Watermark. He is the pastor of um, Piratry and um, <laughs> Pastoral Care. And, uh, <laughs> and Jim has an outstanding ministry to pirates, and we are grateful that he is with us. Uh, no, he, <laughs> Jim, if you know Jim at all, Jim is an individual that, uh, that is a guy that is always driving us to prayer. And he recently had an issue with his eye that they had to put a gas bubble in his eye to close up a particular issue that was going on there. And the doctor said, you've got to be face down for two weeks after this surgery. And so literally they had a special chair built. That was, if you were going to design a chair for Jim Wimberly, this would have been the chair you built. It's got pads that go like about this angle right here, and it's got a little pad for your face like you're getting a massage. And he had to sit in that thing all day long for two weeks and then sleep on his face throughout the night. And so Jim has been praying for this conference more than most these last 
months. But we are glad that he is with us. Uh, Jim and his wife Judy have uh, five children. Uh, four, sorry. That's right. He said, uh, sorry, four. And, uh, and, and Judy and Jim are empty nesters, but are here to provide some perspective uh, on a number of different specific areas that we have that we're going to talk to today. And this is Alex Wagner. This is my wife. This is who I've had a little monkey business with to create my zoo. And uh, we are glad that she is up here to share with you what it's like to live with six small children and one grown one. And then Lucina Thompson is the wife of Kyle Thompson. And Kyle and Lucina have two children. And uh, they lead us as a, one of the uh, key couples at Watermark as they serve as Kyle serves as an elder. And Lucina leads and teaches our women's study on Wednesday morning. And we are grateful she's here. And Brett Johnson has three daughters. Uh, in college and in high school, and Brett and Sherry also are one of the couples that gets to serve us from a leadership perspective and an elder role here at Watermark. So we are glad that this panel is here, and we're going to just charge through and answer each of these questions in a way that hopefully, as I said, will scratch your itch uh, in the area that you are uh, concerned of. I'm going to start, and each of us have taken kind of a, a couple of these, and are going to run lead, and then we're going to interact and banner with them together. So just let's open up the tab two. And let's get started. This is really all that I did last night in terms of what is the goal of parenting. So let me just uh, remind you this morning of some major principles and actually highlight a few key things. Uh, the goal of parenting comes right there from Genesis 1, 24, 28, when God gave us the specific charge uh, about what he would love us to be about. And the scripture says right there that we are to be fruitful and multiply. Now, what's interesting about this when God gave this command is in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, when God is talking about the creation account and specifically the role of humanity in God's sovereign uh, creation, he was very specific about how uh, beings were to be created. And in Genesis 1, 24 and 25, I want you to look. We're going to read it together. And there's some uh, words that show up again and again, just like, and he followed in the wickedness of his father Jeroboam will show up uh, a couple of dozen times in First Kings, there's a phrase that shows up five times right here in two verses. Let's read it and we'll discover it together. Then God said, let the earth bring forth creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind and the cattle after their kind and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind and on it goes. Well, you start to get the idea that God wants us to know that the law of creation is that be uh, beasts or beings bring forth things, what? After their kind. And so when God gave this command in Genesis 1, if you know your Bible at all, it isn't until Genesis 3 that this creation spun out of control and rebelled against God. And so when God gave the command to humankind to reproduce after its kind, what he meant specifically there was, is that you are going to produce what you are. And what you are right here when I created you, you are people that know me, that love me, that enjoy me, that walk underneath me in, in the, with me protecting you and providing for you and preparing you for your job. You are people that love me and know that I love you. You embrace me and that honor me in all that you do. Go multiply that into all your kids. Now, as we talked last night... Whoever you are is going to make a big impact on what you do. And the reason that there is so much trouble in this world is because there are many people who do not walk with God, who do not honor Him, who do not love Him, that are multiplying after their kind. And as we've seen, the law of the harvest is that you reap what you sow, you reap it later than you sow it, and you reap more than you sow. You put one seed in, you get an entire tree. And so God is saying, you make sure as you go out there and fill the earth that what you fill it with are folks like you in Genesis 1. The goal of parenting 
is that you would be an individual that would multiply after your kind. In Genesis 1, the context is there. Your kind is folks that love God, honor Him, walk with Him, and enjoy Him forever. Uh, there's the three P's I used last night to protect, to provide, and to prepare. We see in 1 Timothy 5.8, if you don't provide for your kids, then you're worse than an unbeliever. Now this is really important because it's your job to mentor your kids, to model for your kids, then to move, let them move on to a time where they're going to be fruitful and multiply themselves. But if your goal, and there's the next blank, if your goal is to have your child trust Christ, then we're going to make a case this morning that you're setting yourself up for frustration. And setting your kids up for what we would call a false profession. Being fruitful and multiply does not mean you make your kids memorize words that you know that are supposed to be words of declaration about attitudes of your heart. Let me say this. The goal of parenting is not to get your kids to pray some prayer of salvation. It's not to get your kids to get baptized in an early age. The goal of parenting is not to have your children be individuals that, that as I said, are culturally coerced into saying that they agree with you as a person who's learned to love God, walk with Him, honor Him, and live under His protection, provision, and preparation for life. But it's the model for them. The value in that, it is to mentor them into a relationship with God if they would choose to accept it, and then to let them move on and give an account for their own decisions. Too many of us feel like our job as a parent is to have kids at an early age say something, so that we can go, I've done my job. My kids now, I've, I've, I've had them baptized. I've had them confirmed. And we all know, those of you that have been through confirmation classes, at a certain age in order to get to go to the next thing or get your white Bible or get your allowance, whatever it was for you, that you go through that happily. And too many people are under the illusion that because they were baptized as a child, because they said something at vacation Bible school as a child, or because they went through some sort of confirmation as a little older child, that they have learned to love and walk with God. Now, is there anything wrong with confirmation? Is there anything wrong with a child believing and being baptized? Absolutely not. But it isn't your goal to get them to do that because you will be able to produce that response. We'll talk some more about that, specifically how that works out in our household. Um, if your desire, however, is not to do everything you can to model for your child the importance of a personal relationship, not a professed understanding or an assented agreement, but a personal relationship with Christ, and communicate to them the wonders of His grace and how to receive them, you are setting yourself up to be found wanting as a parent. Do you see the separation from what I just said? Everything you should be about is to direct your child into understanding the value of your intimate, abiding relationship with a God who loves them, cares for them, protects them, and provides them, and walks them through the minefields of life and the bear traps that will so easily consume us. But you don't want to make your child feel like you're only going to love them if they sign up for the club that you're a part of. You should pray that direction, and you should do everything you can to model and to communicate to them the wonders of the grace of God in your life, and if you don't, you are wanting as a parent. Whatever else you do, you're hurting your child. The reality, though, is that nothing can happen through you that has not happened to you. And so this morning, we would be remiss if at some point in this conference, we didn't take a moment and just explain to you what it means to have a relationship with this living God. It doesn't mean that you just have some knowledge of who He is. It doesn't mean that you just agree with the knowledge that you've heard about Him, that God 
loves humanity. And in creating humanity, when humanity ran away from him, rather than allow them to be consumed in a moment of judgment, God in his grace immediately intervened. And somebody else died as a result of somebody else's sin. And God covered his people with the provision of that sacrificed life there in Genesis chapter 3. And he began to teach humankind right then that, look, just like I told you, you disobey me, the author, giver, and creator, and sustainer of life, you're going to be separated from life, and the consequence is death. But because I love you, and because I will accomplish my purposes through humanity and overall creation, what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you my love by substituting another's death for you, that if you choose to acknowledge your rebellion against me and accept this provision, I then can maintain all of my character. I can still be just and judge sin, and yet still be loving and allow those that I care to have a relationship with and extend grace to come into a relationship with me. And he did that for a long time through shadows or pictures or images of sacrifices to remind the people that sin requires shedding of blood or death. And then eventually God himself said, because I am an eternally holy God, I cannot have some finite individual pay a debt that eternity and infinity demands. And so I need an eternally perfect and infinite sacrifice to be redeemed, to allow man to be redeemed before me. And God said, the only eternally holy and perfect sacrifice that there is, is my life. And in the person of Jesus Christ, God walked on this earth and lived a life that was free of sin and therefore free of the wage due to sin, which is death. And yet he freely gave himself up and humbled himself and paid the debt on the cross that you and I owe in order that God might then still be just and at the same time the justifier of those who love him. And when you come to a place that you understand that you are an individual that has offended the God of creation, that you have said, I don't really want your protection, I don't really care what you say a provision for life is for me, and I don't really want you to prepare me for tomorrow or for anything or for death or for standing before your face. Take a walk, big guy, and I'll deal with you when I see you. God will allow you to stand before him as that rebellious child. And God says there's two kinds of people, individuals that will say to him at this moment, God, thy will be done. Glorify yourself by providing for me a sinner. And then to others, one day that God will look at them and say to them, hey, you don't want anything to do with me? Well, thy will be done. Have it your way. And he will allow you to live forever in a place where there's nothing that would even remotely remind you of the wonders of his grace. But what God wants you to know is that he does love you, prodigal. And he does want you to come back underneath the shelter of his protection to receive his provision for you and to allow him to prepare you to glorify him this day and forevermore. And the way that you do that is you let his grace work through you. And as grace works through you, when you by faith, through grace, come to acknowledge that Jesus Christ alone is the means through which you can be restored into a relationship with this infinitely holy and perfect God. Now when you understand that this God then has not been trying to steal joy from you, not been putting curfews on you to keep you from having fun, but is unlocking you to a life of freedom and joy, you should be zealous to sit at your Father's feet and to walk around and say, teach me more. Take me places I would never go by myself because I'm a fool and will delude myself and cope with strategies in a way that will bring pain into my life and not healing. And so when you come to a place, when you've received that gift of grace, and that work of grace is happening to you, then he says, I want you to be a vessel through which grace can work through you, that you teach others to know me and walk with me. If you've never in your life understood that it's not just knowing that story of God's love for you, 
and that you've agreed that Jesus Christ was an individual who lived in this earth. You might have even said, hey, you know, I'm okay with the fact that he died on the cross. I'm okay with the story of his resurrection. But if you have never personally said, I am going to depend on that and trust in that, then you need to make that an issue of your greatest concern before you do anything else for your own life. That's what your father says. All right? We would love to talk with you about that. And if you're confused about any piece of that, believe me, that is our greatest joy in sharing with you how the work of God can happen to you and in you so that you might shepherd well as it happens through you. Now, as you go forward, right there in uh, the little blanks, you've got Deuteronomy where it just talks again about how you're to shepherd your child in every way that you can. All along the way, you are an intensive 18-year discipleship program before you release that kid to Sodom and Gomorrah you. He better be ready to be a missionary. Otherwise, he will be a member of that frat that he goes to there at Sodom and Gomorrah and live the life of the rest of that city. And so the goal of a parent is to prepare, as we said, is to raise a healthy adult. It is not to be known for having a perfect child. This is very significant because a lot of us feel like our job as a parent, who we are as a parent is being evaluated by how our child live and behave right now. Now listen, your children are sometimes going to run around and be crazy. And that doesn't mean you're a bad parent. What you do with that craziness, what you do with that rudeness, is what makes you a good or a bad parent. The fact that your kid hurts other kids' feelings on the playground doesn't make you a bad parent. Do you think you could uh, emotionally intimidate your children enough that they would know to not make a mistake in your presence or to embarrass you in public and to be physically and emotionally, verbally abusive enough in order to scare them into basically being a kid that really doesn't make a mistake and people go my your child is so well behaved my your child is so placid i've never heard your child say anything but inside there's just a beast that is roaring to get away and out from underneath your heavy hand and the heart hasn't been changed and they're there underneath the prison of your authoritarian uh, leadership, but they are ready to break out. The goal is not to have perfect children. The goal is to raise healthy adults. And so we're going to talk a little bit about what that looks like. But too many parents think that the way their child acts right now is what determines whether they're a good parent or not. You need to know you're going to have some children that take a lot of constant attention and training as a parent, but they're not going to look like very good children. You can whoop them into obedience in public. And you can break their little spirit while they're in your presence. But that horse will still buck when it goes to its own rodeo. And so you've got to learn. Say, hey, I want you to learn to walk without bit or bridle in your mouth. I want you to be a, an individual who knows the love of what you were created for to walk in. The job of a parent is not to prepare the path for your child, but to prepare your child for the path. Now what we mean by that is that it's not your job to enable them to make sure everything is smooth and everything goes well and they always have their lunch even though they forgot it and their homework's always done even if you've got to do it and right on down the line and to make it real easy and if you're a good parent your child goes you know my mom always took care of me the food was always there the bed was always made the room was always clean the work was always done that's not healthy parenting your job is to prepare your child for the path not to make the path that they walk with you on for those 18 years easy and so we want to shatter some paradigms this morning. What's the goal of parenting? To be fruitful and multiply. What's God wants you to multiply? A godly heritage. You can't multiply godly heritage unless you are part of God's heritage. 
So you've got to deal with that issue yourself. Live underneath His protection, His provision. Be prepared by Him for the path. Does God, once you become His child, make your path smooth? No, in fact, often quite the opposite. He lets trials come in in order to buffet you and train you to become more of who He wants you to be as a healthy, responsible image bearer. You want to know what it looks like to be a good parent? Watch the way God shepherds His people. All right, question number two. So let's just dive in with this. And we've got a couple of folks who are going to start and lead out on this. What is my role in spiritually shepherding my kids? Now, I made the case it's not your job to make your kids pray some magic prayer. We would delight in that, and nothing brings a pair a greater sense of joy. But, Bron, I think you're going to run this one for us. What, what's our role in spiritually shepherding our kids? How heavy-handed, how manipulative, or uh, how, how strongly should we lead? Well, I was thinking through this question a little bit and thought of uh, just recently sitting with a, a dad and... And he made the statement to me, he said, you know, I don't know any parent that really disciples his kids. And I, and all my bells were going, no, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. And, and I just want to tell you that we would tell you that, yes, you do disciple your kids, ready to realize it or not, you are imparting uh, your life to them. And so that, that first blank, that uh, your role is the main role. And as we think, if some of you guys know if, uh, with our student ministry, we were really trying to do a good job of coming alongside parents and having other folks that are investing in your kids' lives. But we would say that is a in-stereo role. It's not a, it doesn't take the place of you. In fact, it hopefully says in stereo what you're saying. And so it doesn't give a parent an out to say, well, if I can just get them into student ministries or if I can just get them with some godly people, and that sounds funny, but that's what I've seen a lot over the years. If I can just get them with some people that will fix my kid. And so I would tell you that, yes, your, your role is the main role, and the church can be a supplement, is the word we're looking for there, uh, supplement your ministry to your child, uh, but it should never have to be a substitute for your lack of ministry to your child. And as you look at that verse, Proverbs 27, 23, know well the condition of your flocks and pay attention to your herds, and your flock, your kids are your main flock, the one that you should be attending to. And so we certainly, I tell you, a mark of doing this for a long time, doing students for about 14 years, there's a, you look back at kids who really are loving the Lord and really serving Him, the mark is their, their parents' investment in them. It's consistently that. Certainly there are cases uh, where God has filled in those gaps and, and allowed our ministry to maybe have a real breakthrough with some kids, but the majority of time you look back, it's parents who love Christ and are also are the lead disciplers, and then we come along and say, yeah, that's the way, walk in it. And so I would just encourage you that that, that role is key. And going along with that, when you think about church and your role there, we just have a number of, of comments here about church. There's, I get the question every once in a while, do I force my kids to attend church? And, and I would just tell you that uh, church, a love for church, uh, your kids are going to see your love for the body of Christ and your love to be involved with the church. And if they see it as something that is boring and irrelevant and you just kind of go and you kind of play church, then that's going to be what they see and that you're discipling them to believe that. And so we would tell you, I, I, the word force in there is the one I circled. If you're at a place where, as your kids, especially as they get older into high school and you're forcing them to go, my encouragement to, to you would be, see, would be more of what Todd talked about last night is to find church moments with them. Don't force them to a thing that you haven't really been involved with or you haven't been really high and you've discipled them along those, lo those lines, what I would encourage you is to invest in them relationally 
And hopefully they'll get into a place as you share your life with them that they'll want to go to church. They need to understand the whys of church. Why would I go? Let me interject right here because this is an age-specific answer. And what Braun said just then is if you wait until your child is old enough to care for himself, in other words, when they can make their own food, dress themselves, stay in the house and not burn it down or stab themselves while you're gone. If you wait until your child is that age before you try and develop in them a care for spiritual things, then they may still physically be able to be whooped by you into attending church, but at that point, they're just going to wait until they can spit the bit, unless grace shows up. One of the deals that we've got as uh, folks that work with each other in the area of children and shepherding them is simply this, is that we say um, that... My job is to do such an excellent part with my piece of the ministry that as long as your kids come back to them in one piece and haven't lost too much blood, that they'll put up with what you do over there in the children's area. Your job is to be so excellent in the way you shepherd and grab the child's heart over there that the parents will come and watch me drool on myself for you know, an hour and 15 minutes as long as their kids can get what you're giving them over there. That's the way we partner together on Sunday mornings. But it's our job to make sure that uh, we're doing everything we can to love your kids and shepherd them when they're young. We had a dad who came to us the other day and said, Dad, I love what's going on at Watermark. And his dad said, well, tell me why you love it. He said, well, you know, I don't feel like I'm going to church when I'm there. But what the kid is saying, I'm learning a ton, and I'm having fun, and I'm learning to walk with God. This is very age-specific. What Braun is saying, when you get to be a junior high kid and a high school kid, and you start to go, well, why does my kid not have an interest in spiritual things? And if you try and then introduce it then because you see that now there's a lot more bear traps set for them, you've waited too long. And if you, by the grace of God, have not been partnered with the grace of God to bring that child to that place, there's not a lot you can do. And so, Brom, would you encourage me, my junior high kid, that maybe because I myself didn't walk with God uh, and now it's time for them to begin to engage with spiritual things, what should I do with that junior high kid? Do I still make him come at that age? What about in high school? And, and your answer very briefly is what? I especially think as they get older into high school that if you begin to force them into those things you say then we've got this kid there that's coming that's you know doing this kind of thing and, and I think it's a we're, you're looking for a breakthrough there and it may start like we talked about with your personal relationship with them and as you're sharing Christ with them and so when dads specifically have asked me that question I said man invest in your kid take the time that they'd be going to our Sunday night deal and man really be intentional with hanging with them and rebuilding that trust with them or building that relationship if there isn't one there. So that's a no. But what you say you should do is begin to show them the value of your own personal relationship. It's hard to make a kid eat vegetables if you never touch them. You can't say, hey, don't worry about what I do, just do what I say. They're not going to buy it. We talked about that last night. You can't say, you better go and be involved with spiritual things or it's going to whoop you. And they're going to look at you and go, Dad, well, frankly... You're going to lose all moral authority there, and rightly so. And you're reproducing at that point after your kind. For, for time's sake, we want to throw, blow through some things so we don't get pinned back at the end. But watch this. If church is something that you do just to check the box, it won't be long before your kids are ready to check out. Another way to say that is if you make church something that you just do as a kid, it will become something they don't do as an adult. Book it. Count on it. We just said it this way. Kids learn to disdain cultural Christianity. They are much quicker to point out that the emperor has no clothes. They're not going to tolerate or endure what you do because that's what society requires of you. They're like, just like I was as a kid. I'm like, why are we going to church? doesn't inspire you, motivate you. The guy up there is as bored as I am, it looks like. And there's no application of that into our life when we come back home. And I just said, hey, man, church is naked. There's nothing there. Why are you idiots standing there watching this parade? 
Those aren't nice clothes. Those are no clothes. That was my experience as a young man growing up. And children get that. That's why one of the greatest gifts a body of Christ can give kids is people that are passionately pursuing Him. Because they go, all right, I'm going to check out what it is that my mom and dad are excited about. They're not just checking a cultural box. They're moving on very quickly. Do not allow a false separation to occur between the spiritual and the secular. There's that verse. That Deuteronomy 6, 3 through 10 is a seminal verse that is going to keep coming up in your parenting. The point is, is everywhere you go, everything you do, it should factor into the wonders of His grace so that your kids go, man, I can't miss having God involved in my life because that's what makes my mom and dad's marriage different. My dad's view of life and work different. My dad's stewardship of resources different. The way we have fun together different. It ought to be everywhere. Imperfect family devotionals are better than no family devotionals. Impromptu family devotionals, teachable moments, are often the most effective. People might say to you, hey, you know what, Wagner? I don't like the way you guys do family devotionals. I would say, great. Tell me how you do it. Well, we don't do them. Then I would say, I like my way of doing them better than your way of not doing them. But there's all kinds of great resources that are out there to help you with this. Some of them are in the back there in your resource page, and we would point you to that. But impromptu devotions, I talked to you last night, teachable moments are the most effective way. I want to remind you, folks, just tying up that idea up front, the dead church kids with unmoved parents become de-churched adults. And so your spiritual life is everything in modeling for them the importance of spiritual things. Let your child express their desire slash need to be baptized before you baptize them. Alex, would you just comment on the way we do baptism in our house. And we've got a kid who's 12, we've got a kid who's 10, a kid who's 9. And how many of them have been baptized so far? Well, none of them have been baptized. And um, the reason behind that is we would love for our kids to um, really feel that that calling is on their life apart from us. And um, to this point, that hasn't happened. Although they've talked about it some, but we don't want uh, the pressure of you know other children getting baptized or... Um, the fact that Todd's going to be baptizing this Sunday, and it's just come up recently for them to go, oh, well, maybe I do want to be baptized. But we would hope that they would pray, read, as they're reading their Bible, that Scripture would inform them and really God would convict them that that's something that they need. Now, to the best of our understanding, how many of our kids have made a genuine profession of faith? To the best of our understanding, I would say five out of the six of them. Right. Five out of the six, the except fifth, for the, the one that walks around like this all the time. Okay? But, but what we've said is, look, you know, here's the deal we've cut with them. If you want to get baptized, you've got to come to us as a matter of your own conviction. Not because you're heard there's a big party or picnic. Not because your buddy's getting baptized. Not because your sister or brother's getting baptized. Because you on your own and listening to God, reading His Word, being moved by teaching would approach us and say, you know what, Mom and Dad, as a believer in Jesus Christ, I feel like it's my responsibility to stand up and tell other people, this is my faith. I said, I'd love to baptize you anytime you want. But here's the deal. You're not going to get baptized because somebody else in our family is getting baptized. And if you ever want to get baptized, you've got to come to Mom and I on your own in private and say, hey, this is a conviction that God's laid in my heart. It says that believers should be baptized. I've never done that. Because I want that growing up in a home where there's obviously a heavy presence of spiritual conversations. I want them to know this is their faith. I think it is right now. But I want them to mature and own this as an individual. That's the way Alex and I have rolled. Judy? Yes. Uh, we had that policy in our home also. And our four children were all baptized as adults and really quite separate from us and our influence. And I feel like it was a really meaningful thing. So we never put any pressure on them to do that growing up. And God just 
directed them in that way in very different circumstances and lots of different time spans. Uh, not, a, not all four of them just all of a sudden said, we're going to go do that. So it was very unique, and I did see the Spirit just lead them in that direction. Okay. What is my role as mom and dad, and how does it affect my parenting? Brett, you going to lead us out in this? Actually, Lucina. Lucina, good. Start us off. Um, I'm going to just start with the wife's role. And, and in marriage, the wife's role is really to complete um, her spouse and really to fill in the gaps. We do that for each other. We've spoken of that a lot. Specifically in parenting, I think God has gifted women, um, moms, in a very special, unique way. The world would call this women's intuition. Um, biblically, we call that discernment, but it is definitely a gift from God. And that's your first blank to fill in. Use your intuition, moms specifically, to help balance your spouse's intuition. I think many times as moms, we are much more in tune to the emotional needs of our kids and what, where they stand many times um, what Kyle might be doing with Jordan, I could see Jordan's spirit begin to fall and, and that, that look that crosses his face that his daddy might not recognize. And, and I can speak into that with Kyle so that we don't miss the emotional or bankrupt our children emotionally. And just to add to that, uh, guys, this doesn't let you off the hook to be the person that you're supposed to be. I think we have a culture where we have... Uh, especially in our community, we have a bunch of very A-type dads in the business world, but a very passive group of dads in the actual family world. Uh, I was driving in the car a little more than a year ago, and one of my youngest daughter's friends, we were talking about where they went to church and why they went to a certain church, and, and uh, she said, much to my dismay, that, well, my mom is the spiritual leader of our home, and that's where she wants us to go. Well, having known this dad, I called the dad and got a chance to challenge him. And, and guys, I, I just got to tell you here, this is where you can model as the shepherd of your family. Uh, if, if you're not modeling this well, and going back to some of the stuff that Bron was talking about earlier, you know, do you say no to church? There's a great picture, an old Norman Rockwell painting that we used uh, somewhere along the way. Do you know the mm -hmm. painting I'm talking about? And there's this painting of this mom leading these two daughters, and they're all dressed up walking to church, and dad's slumped behind a chair reading the paper. And the boy's in the back, and he's watching Dad. He's still going with Mom, but he's looking at Dad. And that just tells a, a lot about the culture of where we are. So the blanks here, there. the next one, it says, There are a lot of children being raised in a single-parent home where the mom and dad are still living together. Yep. In other words, what we're trying to communicate in this particular moment is just because your parents are both physically present, that doesn't mean both parents are physically participating and emotionally participating in raising that child. And so too many times people go, hey, we let mom be this area. And Brett, real quick comment on this. Guys will say, hey, my wife does, you know, BSF. My wife goes to hear Lucina on Wednesday mornings. And, and I don't know 10% of the Bible she knows because I'm working to make a living. And, you know, if I have somebody work and provide for me and I can go to Bible studies all day long, maybe I could be the spiritual leader right. of my family. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think that's where a lot of us guys find ourselves is that we think that our wife is more competent biblically, therefore she's more competent to be the spiritual leader. And I just got to tell you, that's just wrong. Our wives may be more competent biblically than us, but they are not more equipped to be the family shepherd. Guys, we are called to be the leaders of our household. We're called to dwell with our wives, but we're called to lead them and to shepherd our kids. In fact, one of the best ways to lead people, you may not know the answer to a question, but a spiritual leader is not somebody who can always say, chapter, verse, here we go. A spiritual leader is the one that says, freeze. We're not going to move on this as a family until we know how God would inform us on this particular topic. Sweetie, weren't you just doing study with Lucina in the Gospel of Luke? Does Jesus have anything to say about this? And if she says, you bet he does, honey, 
Right here. Let's read it. Dad, give me that Bible. Let me read this, folks. Okay, good. I can apply that. This is what we're going to do. That's a spiritual leader. Before you move, Dad can say, hey, look, I'm not sure I can pray a prayer so fantastic. It'll be, you know, show up in the common book of prayer. But I can say this. I know this. If God doesn't go with us, unless the Lord builds the house, we labor in vain. Who build it? Before we move, let's pray together. So don't bail out on spiritual leadership because you think you can't get the same score your wife is going to get on some Bible quiz. Spiritual leadership has more to do with intention and attitude of the heart than it does information. And being there, Woody Allen has great theology. He said 90% of life is just showing up. And I think a lot of times at devotionals where my wife may have more color to add because of all the BSF she's uh, been a part of, me being there with her, standing next to her, sitting next to her, showing my kids that I am part of this deal is very important. Lucina Brett said that we should use our intuition, our womenly intuition and presence, to help our spouse uh, balance our child's leadership. But uh, talk about how in your family you've got two little phrases that Sherry's a certain kind of mom and that you're a certain kind of dad. And it goes with this next blank. Your child doesn't need mom to constantly rescue them and they don't need dad to consistently release them into danger. In other words, mom doesn't need to put so many floaties on the kid they wouldn't drown in a hurricane. And your child doesn't need you to say, we're going to learn to swim today. Come to the high dive. All right? And this is where we're very different, Sherry and I. Sherry, I call her helicopter mom. She loves to take the helicopter, swoop in, drop the supplies, and then take off. You know, whereas I'm more danger dad. I'm the one, that's eh, okay. They can break their arm. It, it won't hurt them. And so we great, it's great for us to be together because of Sherry's desire to rescue them in a great way and my desire to let them experience danger in a great way. The two together work well. Now, we knew this was going to happen. We're going to move very quickly. I want you to know, when you get a question here that you want more information on, there are breakouts to almost every one of these questions. And so we're going to move quickly, make sure you get the blanks, touch on them, and, and, and show up. To give you the blanks in here, uh, don't buy the lie that moms are for the girls and dads are for the boys. The truth is, parents are for the children. And you see there, it's not good for man to be alone. Two are better than one. If both parents are not physically present, the grace of God still can be. And there's a number of different applications of stories. And Alex, I want you to comment on this real quickly. Uh, or Robin, you're going to talk. Oh yeah, Robin grew up in a single parent home. And Robin, why don't you talk about how God showed up in this specific issue in your life. You had a single mom, uh, you know, as you grew up. And, and how did the grace of God, grab that microphone in front of you, how did the grace of God show up for you? Because we've talked a lot about how God's design is man and woman. Yeah, um, specifically for me, it was first through his word. I remember going to my room, I was probably like 11 or 12, and I grabbed my Bible because I knew that's where I should go. And I said to God, God, if you're really there, then show yourself. And I flipped it open to Hebrews 13:5, and it wasn't a coincidence, it was definitely divine, that God said, I love you. And he said it in the words of, I will never leave you or forsake you. Judy has a cute way of remembering that. Five words whenever you are, I will never leave you. She taught her kids to hold that up in the time of need. So I did know that much to hold up God's word in the time of need and to, to go to him. And he became my dad um, through that. And then later on in life, when I was more of a teenager and making those huge decisions that you make and dating and who your friends are going to be, um, my uncle stepped in that role and clearly made it so obvious to me and talked to me that I needed a father role in my life, and he wanted to be that. He wanted to be the one where I would pick up the phone and call him and ask him questions. 
And so God not only provided spiritually himself for me, but um, physically he provided another man that stepped in that role. And my uncle was the one that Robbie asked to, um, for my hand in marriage, and he also gave me away in my wedding. And still to this day has celebrated with me and come and visited my children when they were born. So God has definitely provided spiritually and physically. Mom and Dad, if you're here and you're a single parent, it is imperative for all of us to insert ourselves into a body. But I will say even more so, you. All right, here we go. How do I age appropriately discipline my kids? Now, again, entire breakout on this. In fact, broke up according to age. But I'm going to walk you through some major principles. This is mine. Before you purpose to discipline your child God's way... You should discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. I want to say again, you're going to lose the moral authority in your home to tell your kids to live a certain way unless you yourself are one that is seen to be under authority. And so before you say, I want to discipline myself God's way, you better make sure that you are disciplining yourself, 1 Timothy 4, 8, for the purpose of godliness. And there are scriptures that talk about how an individual's response to discipline says a lot about who they are uh, as, as uh, a wise individual. A parent who will not discipline their child is a parent who does not love their child. And in fact, forgive me, I skipped one blank because I said a child and an adult's willingness to respond to discipline, that's what determines their character. And again, you will reproduce who you are. Kids will be what they are now becoming. And if they are somebody who is in the presence of a father or a mother who disciplines themselves for the purpose of godliness, for them to be disciplined towards that will make some sense. Yes? Um, just keeping it real, like we've talked about doing, uh, this, these past two weeks, I just feel like I want to interject that um, I gave a pretty stellar performance in um, not modeling what we're talking about. And um, so I just wanted to say that um, with our kids, I probably did not, not probably, I did not model my love for the Lord this last two weeks. And uh, it was pretty um, unfortunate. And, but good, too, that we were pressing on toward the parenting conference. And, <laughs> and um, I shared all this with Todd this week. Yeah, and with the children. Okay, and, because yeah, one of the ways that, that asking my, for forgiveness from them multiple times. Yeah, m- m- one of the ways my wife shepherded our kids extremely well is when she wasn't that same sweet, kind, uh, long-suffering presence in our home. A few moments is she just said, "Hey, I just two need to weeks. look for two weeks." <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, uh, She took a moment and just said, said to the kids, she said, listen, I want, to just, I want to just tell you, you know, I've not been happy with what I've modeled for you, but I want to model something else for you now. I mean, I want to ask your forgiveness. I want to tell you that, you know, I've been short with you, Allie. Kirby, I haven't really put your interests ahead of mine. Coop, I've been all over. You've been riding you hard. There's been a lot going on, a lot of pressure I've been feeling about some stuff. And she just shared with them and modeled for them and disciplined herself for the purpose of godliness by practicing the discipline of confession and humility. And so she shepherded them beautifully because they see, hey, my mom needs Jesus. My mom needs grace. My mom needs forgiveness. And that's a great gift and a great blessing to them. Okay? And my uh, instruction was like a clanging, clanging cymbal or a noisy gong and that they just wanted to cover their ears and run away from me. <laughs> a parent who does not discipline their child is a parent that doesn't love their child. 
Uh, a good parent knows the difference between foolishness, which requires discipline, and childishness, which requires instruction. In other words, when a, uh, a, a two-year-old pushes out, or a four-year-old even, you know, pushes a screen door to open a door and puts their hands through a screen, if you go over the top and you discipline that child and your frustration because don't they know how much that screen costs? Don't you know you can't push a screen door? What's the answer? As a matter of fact, no, I didn't catch that in my Home Depot seminar this week. Okay? But boy, as a dad, you're like, you know, you idiot. What are you doing? Okay, now that's childishness. They don't know. You need to touch them. Say, let me show you what this does when you push on a screen. Now, foolishness, if you say, please don't do that, and they continually run at the door full speed and hit with their hand. And then you need to say, now, we've talked about this, right? We've set up clear boundaries. There's not a problem here with information. Okay, you instruct childishness and you punish foolishness, okay? When a kid's knocking over milk constantly at dinner, okay? That's part of being a child. It's part of being an adult. You've had iced tea spilled on you in your dates in the last year, haven't you? But if the kid is having that happen because they are disrespectful, because they don't ask people to pass them things in a repeated way, you don't punish them for what? Spilling the milk, but you punish them for the foolishness of not being polite, not asking others to pass them without leaning all the way across the table. Do you see the difference? First time they do that, they may not have learned it didn't make sense. Hey, Dad, I don't want to interrupt you. You're digging into that stake pretty heartily, so I'm just going to reach for it the first time. I understand that. Let's have that conversation. Just ask. Okay? You've got to know the difference between those two. Uh, the biblical basis for, dis- for physical discipline is clear. Let me just give you a few of these. He who withholds his rod hates his son. But he who loves him disciplines him diligently. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. And there are many others that we'll touch on and you can look at through there. Spanking is not something that should be done in haste. You must make sure you're disciplining them for their good, not for your good. Discipline for their good means you do not punish them because of your anger. I have a couple of golden retrievers, one that was an incredibly exceptional dog and would know 50, 60 commands, 70 commands, and I could take a lot of places and use as a speaking illustration. And folks ask me, Todd, did you ever, you know, how did you train that dog that way? Did you, have, you ever, have you ever hit that dog or beat that dog? And I looked at him honestly and I said, not because he needed it. You know, but when he was a puppy and he'd chew some shoes or he'd chew a belt or he'd chew a piece of furniture... You know, I, I, I have to admit, I, I, I physically responded to that, but not for him. It was for me. And how many of us do the exact same thing with our kids? You've got to make sure that when you discipline your child, you do it with an incredible amount of grace. Physical discipline should be done with consideration of the uniqueness and age of the child. One to five-year-olds. Specifically, it's corporal, meaning bodily punishment. These are guidelines. Different children will push the envelope a little bit each way. You've got to understand the uniqueness. The, the, the level of your spanking will change with your child. But one to five-year-olds, corporal. Six to ten-year-olds, it's largely correction. Eleven to eighteen-year-olds, coaching. Nineteen-plus, you move into community with them. You know, folks say, when should I stop beating my, my child? Well, my mom stopped when I was 28, all right? But, uh, but seriously, you know, there's something about spanking a child once they get past a certain age that does more humiliation than it does good. And there are other ways to come alongside that child. But if you're one of those individuals that say, I'll never spank my child, I would take exception with that. Now, if you ever spank him out of anger, and there's a reason the Scripture encourages us to use the rod. It's because when I've got to go get something that, that is going to not permanently wound my child, but that is going to you know, allow them to remember the consequence, 
you know, what I'm able to do and capable of doing and have done to every one of my kids at different times is when something happens, I go, what are you doing? What is wrong with, what is wrong with you? All right? And they go, well, I'm growing up under an abusive father. That's what's wrong with me. But if on the other hand I go, hey, you know, Coop, man, we've talked about that, right? We've talked about this incessantly, and you know what the consequences are to that. I've told you, you cannot do that to your sister. You cannot respond that way to your mother. What you want to do is remove that child physically from the presence of other people. So I want you to go in your room. I'll be there in a minute. Okay? You're powering down. You go and grab that instrument. You walk in there. You have a conversation with them. And you say, now listen, we've talked about this. And I've got to make your offense memorable to you. And you don't say, you know, the things that you heard your dad say, it's going to hurt me more, it's going to hurt you. But you can say, you know, I don't like, I've said this to my son and my daughters. I said, you know, do you think your dad enjoys you know, spanking you. And there are times that they can see that I've enjoyed in anger spiking and giving the backhand or the quick little pop. I did enjoy it. It gave me release. I wasn't doing that for them. I was doing that for who? Me. And that is never acceptable. Ever acceptable. But when I go in a room and do it right, sit with them, talk with them, and don't surprise them, and we give them that whooping, and I'd have them turn around, and I have my children look me in the eye and say, Dad, thank you for loving me for disciplining me and reminding me about the cost of foolishness in my life. And I say, I love you. And I care for you. And I pray with them. I didn't humiliate them in front of their friends. I didn't humiliate them in front of their brothers and sisters. I didn't do it for me in an anger. And I didn't do it when they were, you know, had a driver's license in their pocket. But I did it because I loved them. And it's a blessing to them. And though you beat them with the rod, the scripture says, Though they wail, they will not die. In fact, you will save their very soul from hell. Okay, quickly. Nobody disciplines perfectly, but godly parents discipline purposely. Flee from anger fairly, consistently, and with the best interest of the child in mind. Okay, Brett, you want to jump in real quick? Yeah, real quick, the one you missed was why. Yeah. Up there, the moral... Why? As children age, parents must teach the moral why, not just enforce the moral what. That's a big part of discipline. Do you understand why this is happening to you? And in fact, I've said this to my children at a specific time. I've said to them, hey, I'll tell you what, we're going to get a spanking for that. And go to your room. And when I get there, if you can tell me why you're going to get a spanking, I'll give you one. If you can't, I'm going to give you two. So get in there and I'll be there in a minute. And I get in there, do you know why this is going to happen? Yes, Father. Yes, Dad. Because of what I just did, I was disrespectful to mom, or I responded in anger to sister, or I was selfish in the way that that game played out. Exactly. Okay? All right, we're going to move real quickly through this next deal. And let me just encourage you to come to the breakout session on purity. We will cover this very deeply. Uh, if That wasn't an infomercial for me. Anyhow. Uh, okay, here's the blanks. Don't ever be ashamed to discuss what God was not ashamed to create. So talk to your kids early about sex. Don't make sex a sin. Make the abuse of sex a sin. Well, this it's is so important. We see women all the time that come in, and their whole life they were kept from sexual immorality because their dad said, it's dirty, it's wrong, don't ever go there. And then all of a sudden they wear a white dress and spend 50000 bucks, and dad says, hey, psst, go get them. Yeah. And she's like, are you kidding me? And, and we talk early about it being a gift. It's important for kids to realize that everything has its right place. And sex has its right place, and it's only in marriage. There are no exceptions to that. And we talked about it being a gift early on. Lucina's got six really good principles. 
Okay, very quickly, there's no space for this, so you might flip over and write this on the opposite page. But you need to be casual and be natural in this discussion. If you are tense and you are nervous, and you will be the first time, but that translates. And so be as natural and as, as um, uh, at ease as you can. Small questions deserve small answers. There's a great illustration of the kid that says, what's sex? Comes to the mom, comes to the dad, what is sex? So the parent takes the deep breath and goes, okay, here it is. And this child's way too young, I think, but all right. So they launch into the great, you know, explanation and they give it all. And the eyes big as saucers look back and the child says, I just wondered if I was male or female. <laughs> so, you know, you just, it's, if, make sure you know what the question is. Well, what, what, it, what, why, why are you asking that? What causes you to think that? Um, before you launch into a discussion, at, on the converse side, big questions deserve big answers. And there, um, I'm just going to give an illustration. Our kids were in middle school. Um, there had been an instance, an occurrence at school in the hallway. And over dinner, one night, our son says, Dad, what's a blowjob? Um, and and um, my daughter's in sixth grade. My son's in seventh. That's a big question. Equally, he's come home one time, and how do homosexuals have sex? That is a very deep question, but it deserved an honest answer at the time. So, and, and you know, can't be shocked about that. And, and always, Lucina, with the mind of the child and an age-appropriate filter, but your kids need to see that you're not uncomfortable talking about Anything. sin and sex. The celebration of what is good and the reality of what is bad. Because if you won't talk to your kids about sex, somebody else is going to, and they're not going to do it the way you want them to. And as we know, that is, everything is ratcheting down in time frame. And what was junior high for us is late, late elementary, really, for most kids now. You want to learn early on to use the right terminology. Um, if you've got a son and a daughter, if you've got that, that um, uh, great combination in your household, it is very clear from the time they take baths together that boys and girls are different. I mean, you just talk about it. A penis is a penis. You just need to say that's what it is. So use right terms. And why do that? And I'll just ratchet it to marriage because if you cannot begin to talk to your children at a very young age, and, and the fear many times is, well, they're going to embarrass me. I mean, we're going to be in the grocery store, grocery store, and my daughter's going to say, my vagina's itching. I mean, yes, she might. She might say that. But, but the fact of the matter is you can ratchet... Um, let, let's just exponentially go to marriage. Kyle and I, the first two years of our marriage, had great difficulty in this area because we couldn't even say the words. We couldn't say, make love. I mean, we could, there were things that were so difficult to talk about. And, and as you know, when you get into marriage, sex doesn't always work. It's not easy. It, ta it can take a lot of work. So learn to speak about it at an early age. Um, use the teachable moments. Again, Todd's talked about using the age of the child. I don't think you can begin too early. By the time they're five years old, all around you, nature is full of things. You cut an apple open, there are seeds inside, and you can say, oh, these are the seeds, and that's where this apple came from. Do you know you came from a seed, too? That's really all you need to say at that time, but you introduce the idea, an acorn. It's a seed. A big tree grows from that. You came from a seed, too. And then later, by adolescent... Uh, yeah, let me just interject right there. That's exactly right. What, what we've told our kids early on, when they say, what do you mean I came from a seed? Well, you say, God gives daddy special seeds and 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 he and daddies give the seed to mommy when they're ready to have children and god grows a baby and they go cool all right now when they're 17 they don't go cool they go are you kidding me and if you've just now started to introduce sex in that way you've lost them but when sex is a natural part of god's procreative process and pleasure process 
celebrate it in the right context. I'm going to tell you what, we've got so much dysfunction in the church because the church has been so dysfunctional on this issue. And it's killing marriages sitting out here with us today. Lucina, your last point. Um, let them know that they can ask you anything uh, and they'll get a straight and honest answer. I've already given you the examples in our household. But there's some great tools out there. I think by the time your children are 11, fifth, I would say generally speaking, by fifth grade you should have had the sex talk. I mean the actual what happens, what goes where, and, and why. And if you struggle with that, there's a great set of tapes James Dobson has on preparing for adolescence. Typically speaking, dads speak, you know, listen to these tapes with sons, moms listen with daughters. But um, when you're having trouble discussing things, he says it very frankly, and then you can allow open conversation about those things. Okay. Start early is the blank that's there. I want you to hear from Jim and Judy Wimberly. This was when we were sitting together and, and working through our time. I want to tell you, this section, as we discussed it, was what blessed me more than any others. And so, Jim and Judy, walk us through how you teach your kid to be responsible. Uh, first of all, we would just say that as a couple, the two of you need to sit down and talk about what your definition of responsibility is because you come from different family structures and environments and they may not look the same. And so uh, we just summarized that our definition of responsibility is that you are accountable for what you choose to think about, what you choose to say, what you choose to do. And then I think as a couple, you need to talk about what is your motivation for creating a responsible child. Is it your pride? Is it so that you're not embarrassed? Is it for your reputation? And all of those are negative reasons. But the true reason is that you want to be able for that child to stand before God one day and hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. And that kind of response is going to come because they learned responsibility. And what you want to teach is that responsibility in little things is definitely going to be connected to whether you're responsible in bigger things. Uh, what we looked at with responsibility is it's kind of like a puzzle and has different pieces. And we learned early on that if we said to our children, go clean up your room, it didn't get a good response because they did not understand by intuitively pick up the puzzle pieces and put those together, pick up the Legos and put them in the box, look under the bed and drag out the clothes. You know, we had to break that down for them. And the same thing with learning responsibility. You have to look at other character qualities that are involved, such as dependability and initiative and diligence and punctuality. And in this culture, which we did not do with our own children, but I think you need to do because it's a pop-up world, is attentiveness because there are so many distractions. So I think you work on the puzzle pieces, and then when you talk about being responsible, they have some idea of what they are trying to do. And one thing that, in hindsight, we have realized is that negative character qualities in each of our children as adults now keep them from always being responsible. I don't mean that it keeps, makes them totally irresponsible, but it still is a hindrance. For instance, we had one child who's very impatient, and I can still see that that impatience sometimes gets in the way of him being responsible. So if I had it to do over, I would have trained some more on those negative things because I really do see that they follow them into adulthood. But what we tried to do in our house was set up labs 
where, that were safe, where they could learn responsibility and the consequences were clear or the rewards were clear, and we just set those up in safe environments so that we could practice that. And we really used the summers to do that because we had more control and more time with them. And then the school year, they were out practicing what we had set up as a lab during the summer. Uh, the other thing is... Um, do you let a child fail? And I'm going to let James talk about our experiences. Let that. me catch us up with some of the blanks that we have here. The, the, the second one is your motivation for developing responsibilities matters. The third one, know the negative character qualities that hinder the development of responsibility in each child. I thought this was a great insight that Jim and Judy had. They said, looking back, they could trace. They go, you know what? This has always been an issue. Rebellion's always been an issue with this child. And we needed to, to teach them responsibility differently because their bent was more towards rebellion. This child was never a good finisher in anything they did. They started strong, but they didn't finish well. We needed to love and shepherd them and teach responsibility to them differently. That was a great observation that really helped Alex and I go back and not just look where are the character qualities that are shining, but where are the ones they're struggling in. And we could identify in each of our child children. You know, this is an area we're really going to have to help them in. They're going to struggle the rest of their life with laziness or inattentiveness or whatever it might be. Create an environment at home to teach and reward responsibility. Establish criteria for determining when you will allow consequences for irresponsibility to occur and where it is okay to intervene and help them with the appeal. Here's the principle. I want to read it because people will listen to this session. If consequence came because of a willful violation of clearly articulated expectations, Without clearly artic uh, with also clearly articulated incomes, then you should allow them to fail while developing with them a clearly outlined plan for recovery. But if, on the other hand, if expectation of behavior or choice wasn't clear, or if consequences were not laid out, then intervening on their behalf or assisting in their appeal might make sense. Jim, talk us through an illustration of that. Yeah, you, you just don't hold them responsible for something they don't know. And uh, there were times that we intervened on kids' behalf uh, when they were being held responsible for something they didn't know. And then there were times, uh, like the example of uh, one of our children uh, was skipping Spanish class. And the, uh, she had to be in the class, but uh, she had missed too many classes. And the teacher said, if you just write a note, you know, we'll pass her because she has good grades. And we said, no, we're not going to do that because the consequence of that is that she should fail. And she ended up having to take the class over the next year to learn that you can't go through life like that. So even though your teacher was saying, look, if you'll just have your parents sign this because you've been a good student, I'll let you pass, Jim and Judy said to their daughter, no, you've got to learn that, that when you have clearly articulated expectations and you choose to break them, there's a consequence. You're not going to always run into teachers that are willing to look the other way. And because we love you, we are not. And so your senior year is going to be a little bit more crowded than you thought it would. Wasn't very popular with the student, was it? It wasn't. And, and, uh, <laughs> not at all. Uh, and, and another thing on, on work is just teaching them how to work, and you have to get with them to do that. And, you know, I took the boys, and when they were, you know, in junior high school, started them in a lawn business, and that first business was Wimberley, Wimberley, and Wimberley with me doing most of the work. But they had that lawn business all through high school, and when one of the boys went away to college, he went and paid cash for a, a brand-new pickup to go off to school with the money he'd saved doing that. Now, the last blank in this session is start early teaching your kids about stewardship and financial responsibility. And I will tell you that one of the most practical sessions that we've got is on this in the breakouts. And I wish we could spend some time in that, but to get through all these, we can't. Seven, how do I teach my kids discernment? I'm going to give you the blanks here. This is mine. You cannot teach discernment if you are not, guess what I'm going to say? Discerning. Boy, I, I leave with this in every session. It's really about you first. 
Uh, it says in Ecclesiastes 10.16, Woe to you, O land, whose king is a lad, and whose princes feast in the morning. In other words, if you're uninformed and undisciplined, woe to those in your kingdom, in your family. Jesus said, if the blind lead the blind, they both fall into a pit. So you can't teach discretion and discernment if you don't own it. Early on, you've got to teach your children the distinction between what is true and what is imagination. All right, here comes the Santa question. What do you do with Santa Claus? In the Wagner household, we celebrate Santa Claus. Uh, and, uh, and we just tell them, look, I want to tell you something about Santa. Santa is a lot of fun, but he's not true. That's right. I just took that right out of my kid's joy of childhood. But you need to know something. It was impossible to do it. I wanted my kids to know that I was never going to lie to them. I said, hey, let me tell you, Christmas from the beginning has always been about Jesus. Santa, though, is a lot of fun. Santa comes from a guy named St. Nicholas who served kids that were underprivileged. And, and, and it's a, you know, as Jesus gave gifts, uh, God gave us gift in the person of Jesus, there was a man who loved Jesus who gave gifts to children. And he became known as St. Nick or Santa Claus. He's been adopted around the world. But the idea of Santa Claus and Rudolph, boy, it's all pretend. It's imagination. It's fun. Okay, but we're going to have a lot of fun with that pretend gift. I, I told my kids from the moment they could understand that Santa was pretend, and guess what? They were every bit as excited as every other kid in that block that Santa was still going to come. And they were never disappointed. They came back to me and said, Dad, why'd you lie to me about that? I know you tell the truth. And I've been fighting my friends at school that Santa's real when they told me it's not. Now I tell them, listen, this is not your job to tell everybody that Santa's not real. Okay. When people talk about Santa, you can have fun with them. And if they ask you, hey, you know, do you think Santa's real? You can look him down in the eye and say, I've known from the earliest ages that he's not. But we have a lot of fun with him. You know, people get really out of whack on this. They make this a, a, a big witness test. You know, do we celebrate Halloween in our house? Absolutely. One of the greatest holidays for our kids. But we don't have them dress up like, you know, axe murderers and serial killers. There's other fun outfits that work. Uh, but, but we just say, hey, what's true and what's imagination? Just like you're responsible for what you do with truth and error, you've got to be responsible for what you do with your imagination. So we're not going to imagine that we're uh, burlesque girls because there's no fun in that. And we're not to be envious of evildoers. You know, you know, Easter Bunny. I've never had anybody walk up to me and say, Pastor, I want to tell you something, man. I've read my Bible. I've been faithfully involved in community. And I've, I've worked diligently to memorize Scripture. But that dagnum Easter Bunny, man, when I started practicing, that just threw me all off my faith. I've never had it happen. And so quit making these things a false issue of spirituality. Embrace them, have fun, but teach your kids the difference between truth and imagination. Teach your children to learn and live by the book of Proverbs. Oh my gosh, this I could spend an entire week on if they'd let me. You've got to teach the book of Proverbs. They are simple, they are riddles, they are fun. I read a proverb to my kids every day on the way to school. Every day. There's 31 Proverbs, most months have that many days. And so we grab one proverb from that chapter, and I read it to them. I go, talk about this. How does it apply to a third grader? How does it apply to a seventh grader? Let's pray that into your life and in the way you're interacting with your friends. Uh, memorize, meditate, and master the application of Psalm 101. It's written right down there for you. Our children uh, were asked to spend the night at a very early age with other friends. And we said, no, you cannot spend the night away from us until you've memorized Psalm 101. And you can tell me the application of that verse in how you would handle if your buddy wants to watch a movie that's not good, wants to make a decision about going somewhere, manipulating or lying about some particular aspect of what might happen at that house while you're away from us. Until you know that, until it's a part of who you are, until you can explain it, we don't feel like it's safe to put you in a different environment. Talk, explain, teach, quiz your kids. Just constantly uh, create opportunities for interaction. Use current events 
to teach timeless truths. Thank God for uh, the way television stations now are covering uh, girls who walk into bars who maybe were good girls their whole life, the story goes, and made one night of one bad decision and can never be found again. I want to tell you, Natalie Holloway was a major course uh, topic of conversation in our home. I didn't shelter my kids from that story one bit. I saw one little glimpse of where Natalie Holloway, they said, oh, she was always at Bible study, never missed Bible study. She'd always call if she wasn't going to be there. Now, whether that's true or not, whether Natalie was partying on the sly there in Alabama or not, I could care less. I just seized upon that. Do you see this? The story is this girl grew up underneath the home and always made good decisions, but all of a sudden, one time in her life, she decided it was her spring break, senior year, her moment of glory. She was going to go ahead and put her toe in the waters of rebelliousness and explore some of the party life of Carlos and Charlie's that wisdom kept her from. You can do that one time. You can listen to your mom and dad your entire life. You can love God your entire life. And you can make one decision and you're never heard from again. But the real tragedy I would tell my kids is not Natalie Holloway. It's the hundreds of other kids that were down there with them whose hearts were scarred and whose lives were hidden from uh, the wonder that God wanted them to and that weren't beat up and covered in the national news because they went and did the exact same thing. And so I tell my kids, I use current events to teach. I say, tell me what you would do in that situation. They go, Dad, we're nine. But you know what? They've never said that to me. They go, well, and they start to reverse, rehearse. That's why we'd say role play, role play, role play, role play, role play, role play, role play. Hey, you're out with a friend. They don't have a lot of money. They want to put a candy bar in their pocket. What do you do? Hey, you're out with a buddy. They tell their mom, you're going to go see uh, Sky High. But they get in there and they go, hey, this movie is over here. We should walk in. What would you do? Role play, role play, role play, role play. All right? Do it for them. Do it with them. Watch them do it. All right. How do my issues affect how I parent? Um, I'm going to read these and you guys just interrupt me when you have to. Kids may fail to do what you say, but they will rarely fail to do what you do. You're going to reproduce who you are. You guys got that? There's a couple of things here that I want to repeat, and they come up again and again here in these last issues. The greatest personal gift you can give your children is your radical commitment to be like Christ. You can't say you're committed to being a good parent and not care that you yourself are one under authority. The greatest prayer you can pray is what? Lord, change me. That's the greatest prayer you can pray for your children. The greatest um, practice you can develop is a fervent commitment to study, practice, and teach God's Word. I'm going to tell you, the more I'm committed to Proverbs, the more my kids are blessed. Greatest mistake parents make is that they isolate themselves from God and His people. Gang, deeply connecting with others in an authentic way is something to start pursuing today if you don't already have it. Number nine, is it ever too late to change how I've parented my kids? No, never. Um, the fact is, most of us are a lot more equipped as parents than we are effective as parents. But it's a fact that if you are not equipped, you will not be effective. You guys have shown the wisdom and humility to be here today to try and get a little bit more equipped, just like I have been as I've interacted with this panel. The greatest personal gift you can give your children is what? It's a radical commitment to be like Christ. Is it ever too late to become more radical? No, never. Is it ever too late to start praying more fervently, Lord, change me? No, never. I put this in here twice on purpose. The greatest practice that you can start today, if you've not been this kind of parent, is to be fervently committed to study, practice, and teach God's Word. The greatest mistake that you have possibly made up to this point is you've isolated yourself from the benefit of community. Can you start that today? Yes, you can. Is it ever too late to improve as a parent? No, never. But one of the first things you might need to do is go back to your children and say, I need to ask your forgiveness. 
Because I have modeled for you guys so many things that are going to take you a long time to get over. And part of it is because all I knew, I was just doing what I know. And I need to be reparented myself. I need my Father in Heaven who loves me and loves you to, to come underneath His authority again. And it's going to change me as a mom or dad. But then you better do it because your kids are going to watch. All right, number 10. What is the good news about parenting? Panel together. God's grace does what? It covers a multitude of sins, including all the mistakes these ten people have made. And there have been many. There have been many. But you don't bank on that grace. You just thank God for it. There's no greater chance to influence tomorrow. This is the great news about parenting. It is the most valuable thing in the world for you to invest everything you've got in. And there's no greater chance to influence tomorrow than through investing in your kids. And I will promise you this. Parenting is the most exhausting, resource-consuming, humbling thing in the world. And you will never regret a single amount of time, energy, passion, resource, and prayer that you invest in it. Never. It is what, folks, will determine your tomorrow. You are riding your future in the way that you parent. It's important uh, as your kids get older, when you do this as a young kid, you, you will just relish in the idea that when your kid goes and drives when they're 16 year old, that you're at peace. When they go off to college, that you're at peace because you do these things early. Doesn't mean that I'm not worried about my kid, some other person hitting them on the road and all that stuff. It's not what I'm talking about. But just the freedom that we have as parents to release our kids to different stages of life depend on all this stuff that we do early, early on. Hey, the goal of parenting, folks, you know what the goal of parenting is? It's to be fruitful and multiply. Here's really the goal of parenting, is that when you're done, God would look at you and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Not well done, perfect one. Hey, if you've had two weeks of trouble in your family, you know, then, then the goal of parenting is, is to sit there and just say, hey, look, you know what a humble person does at this particular moment? He owns that two weeks and just says, I've struggled and I need to ask your forgiveness and I, I want to get back underneath God's wisdom and how I responded to some different things. Hey, there's some more good news that even when you've done everything you can, if your children don't look like you want them to look because you love them, you can still hear, well done, good and faithful servant. I want to tell you what, of all the people that are up here that have done this the longest, that I respect the most about the way they parent, including my family, are Jim and Judy Wimberly. I am humbled. I was silenced listening to the things that they did as parents for their four kids when they were growing up. I mean, Alex and I looked at each other and go, oh, man. You know, would you guys come and live with us and shepherd our children? Okay. All right. And uh, no, and, and that's, that's what she said then too. No, no, we, we won't, son. We're done. All right. We feel but, such relief sitting up here because we're done. <laughs> and you all are sitting out there with knots in your stomach. Okay. But, but, let me just... but I would like to share just one piece of practical good news of, of raising kids. And that's when you have a child that grows up and is fo following the Lord. And just like that proverb said, a wise son uh, makes a father glad, and, and that makes a father or mother glad. But to uh, just read, we sent all of our kids and asked them, because we've had this prayer group praying for them for 25 years, said, what effect has that had on you? And just uh, it, this is just a response of one of the sons. He just said, I do not feel any pressure to be anything other than who God has called me to be. Your constant prayer makes clear your desire for our lives to be God-centered and nothing more. And that's the greatest reward that a parent can have. And what Judy and I have play, prayed for for 35 years is, God, in your mercy and grace, would you grant us a godly heritage? How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. Psalm 127 ends with, He will not be ashamed when he stands with his enemies at the city gates, which means that your family name is going to continue. 
Now that you're out and your son takes the name Wimberly forward, you can sit there and go, the name Wimberly will live long without me in honor and dignity. And Jim stands at the city gate as his enemies scoff at him and say, old man, you're dying. And he says, but my heritage lives. And it's a great blessing. If at the end of the day you've done everything you can, what do you do if you still got a prodigal? All you can do for a prodigal is, is look at the illustration of uh, the prodigal son and wait, praying that one day there will be that celebration that's talked about in that story. You love them enough to let them eat with the pigs. And you prayerfully and expectantly wait at the gate, ready to run and take them in your arms. But you cannot save them from the path. You've done your best to prepare them for the path, and if the path they take is to live with the pigs, you've got to release them and let them learn and choke on the bone and then love there. 